Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. We will be reading from chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. This is the last sermon that we will have in the Gospel of Luke for a while. We're taking a break this summer. In a couple of weeks, Owen's going to begin a series on Habakkuk, which will take us through uh, the months of July and August, and uh, then we'll get back to the Gospel of Luke as things get started again in the fall. This morning, though, we are looking at Luke chapter 8, and beginning in verse 26. Please give your attention to God's Word. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. A few years ago, in a magazine interview, former U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia was in the midst of this interview, he made the comment in an answer to a question that he believed in heaven and hell, and then he added, and I even believe in the devil. Well, you can imagine the interviewer was shocked to hear him say that and said, you do? And Justice Scalia said, yeah, he's a real person. You're looking at me as though I'm weird. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. One of those people who are more intelligent than you or me, who believed in the devil and wrote uh, profoundly 
about the devil's schemes and strategies and agenda was C.S. Lewis, of course, in his great book, The Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar with it, he writes in the voice of a uh, fictional but uh, supreme commander among the forces of the devil named Screwtape, who is writing a letter to his young nephew, uh, another demon who's in training, the demon named Wormwood. And he's trying to instruct him through these letters how to subtly and, and, and uh, secretly lead people astray, lead them even into hell. How to tempt them, how to deceive them, how to take them into bondage to sin and ultimately spiritual bondage. Well, in the preface to his book, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, speaking of the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. How do we view the spiritual realm in a right way? Of course, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we accept the Bible as his word, and that lays out for us, the Bible it does, it lays out for us the narrative. A lot of people talking about narrative these days, wanting to change the narrative. A person's narrative is their worldview, their view of reality, how you see history, how you see the future. And the narrative, according to Scripture, is that there is a spiritual realm. The Bible tells us that you can't understand this physical, material reality unless you see it in the broader context of a spiritual reality, a spiritual realm inhabited by spiritual beings. Probably one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament is Ephesians chapter 6. Let me just read that for you to remind you of the narrative or the worldview or the view of reality that Paul lays before the church there. He says to us, beginning in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. One thing that often frustrates us, though, is the lack of details about the spiritual realm. We're very curious about it. But the Bible doesn't tell us much. The Bible doesn't want us to get, as C.S. Lewis said, in an unhealthy way, focused upon and obsessed with the spiritual realm. It wants us to be aware of the spiritual realm, but to keep our focus where the scriptures want us to keep our focus, which is upon who God is. If you want to know details about the spiritual realm, the Bible gives you many, many details about who God is and what his plan or his narrative for history is, what he has done and what he promises he'll do. Those are the details about the spiritual realm we need to know, and that's where the scriptures want us to keep our focus. But they, the scriptures do tell us what we need to know about the spiritual realm. As C.S. Lewis wrote, he wants us 
to be aware that there are devils, there are demons, there is a heaven, there is a hell, but our focus is to be on Christ. As we look at the world around us and we see the chaos, the conflict, the upheaval in our culture, we must know that it cannot be fully explained in material terms. Scientists cannot give us all the answers. In particular, sociology or psychology cannot give us all the answers to understand what's going on in the world around us. There are evil beings, evil spiritual beings that are at work in our midst to carry out the plans and the schemes of the devil that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. This passage in Luke chapter 8 in a sense, pulls back the curtain a little bit and allows us, the Lord Jesus Christ here allows us to see what's going on in the spiritual realm, showing us the power that Satan has working through his demons to destroy a human life. Because ultimately, that's one of his main purposes, is to destroy human lives made in the image of God. This account picks up right after, as we saw last week, Jesus and his disciples sailing across the Sea of Galilee were hit with a crazy, violent, deadly storm. But now, as you see at the beginning of this passage in verse 26, they've arrived at the other shore on the other side of the sea after Jesus stopped and stilled and put that sea, put the storm and put the sea at peace. He stopped at the other side of the, they got to the other side of the lake and there they are immediately confronted with a crazy, violent, demon-possessed man. And as we realize that, realize that we saw, said last week that Jesus planned this trip for his disciples to go across the sea, to face the storm, to test their faith, to strengthen it. But also, we know that he went across the sea to save this very, very broken man. What we have here is a lesson in spiritual warfare. This undoubtedly is the most extreme example of demon possession that the world has ever known. Sadly, this shell of a man, this animalistic man that they encounter being controlled by demons is a vivid display of what that demonic power is like. How demons can control a human body and a human soul. As Jesus and his disciples are getting out of the boat on the shore of the lake, they are accosted by, as Luke describes him, a man from the city who had demons. He points out that he's from the city. What that, I think, alludes to is that he had a life in the city at one time. He was probably a normal man, living a normal life. Maybe he had a wife, maybe he had a job. But something happened. Probably through the pursuit of sin, he came increasingly under the control of demonic spirits. And now it says he was living among the tombs. And what that is referring to is that, as I said last week, uh, the Sea of Galilee was surrounded by hills and mountains, and of course there would be cliffs alongside the lake. And in those cliffs, what the people from the town would do is they would, um, they would carve out little chambers in the, in the cliffside and then they would use those to bury people. Those would be tombs where people were buried. 
And that's where this man was living, in one of those tombs, among the bones and remnants of people who had died. His appearance would have been shocking. The first thing that Luke points out, the first thing he would have noticed is that he was naked. But beyond that, if you go to Mark's account, Mark's account of the same story, Mark and Matthew both tell this story as well. In Mark's account, he says that he was covered with wounds and scars because he was continually crying out, screaming, and cutting himself with stones. This would have been a very scary encounter for the disciples. Matthew's account says that he was so fierce that people wouldn't come through that area near the tombs lest they meet him. He was violent. In verse 29, it explains that people had tried to restrain him with shackles on his hands and his feet and chains, but he had extraordinary strength and could break out of the shackles and the chains. In the eyes of the Gerasene people, he was seen as no more than a wild animal and a dangerous one at that. Now, a materialist psychologist would read this account and say, well, this is just a primitive view of a severe psychosis. But when Jesus saw this man, he did not see just a a psychosis, a psychological case study. That's not what Jesus saw. He saw a man that was enslaved not only to sin, but these demonic presences in his life. Demons, according to scripture, were once angels. They were created good by God. But at some point before creation, Satan led a rebellion in heaven. And he and the angels who followed his rebellion were cast out. And from that point on, after God created the world and after the fall, after the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden, the demons came to inhabit this fallen world, and they've been a spiritual presence ever since. They are here to carry out the mission, the schemes, the plan of Satan. The Bible teaches that demon possession is something separate and distinct from mental illness. This isn't just a primitive view of mental illness. This is a possession by spiritual evil, uh, spiritual beings which manifested itself by, by mental illness. In other uh, cases of demon possession that we meet in the Gospels, Book of Acts, demon possession manifests itself in different ways. Not always mental illness. That's one way it would manifest itself. But as we saw other healings, other casting out of demons, sometimes it was blindness that was the manifestation of the, of the demon possession. Sometimes it was muteness. Sometimes it was seizures, that the demons would, would cause a seizure in the human being that was possessed. But the illness, mental illness, physical illnesses, physical disability was always just an outward manifestation of a spiritual presence, a spiritual possession by evil spirits. Unlike regular mental illness, a demon in this case takes control of the person's mind, the person's body, so that the thoughts, the words, and the actions 
of the person possessed are actually controlled by the demon. Now Jesus sees this man, and he not only sees a man who's possessed by a demon, but by many demons. He exposes this. Jesus could see the spiritual reality of what was going on with this man. He exposes it for everybody, for the disciples, everybody around to, to see what's going on by asking for the name. And the name that is spoken by the, by the lead demon, I suppose, whoever the spokesman is for the demons, is legion. In the Roman army, a legion was a troop of 6,000 soldiers. Now, I don't know if this demon was boasting, exaggerating, speaking figuratively, or speaking literally. I honestly don't know. The scriptures don't tell us how many demons were possessing this man. But it was many. That's the point. Many, many demons had taken control of this man. And when you look at the description of him that we looked at just a moment ago, what you see is that this man was a walking illustration of what Satan would like to do to any sinner made in the image of God. He's a walking illustration. If Satan were able to have his way with you or I, any human being, this is what he would love to create. This is his, his ideal work of, of devilish art, so to speak. His nakedness is a picture, a vivid picture of the loss of shame, the loss of conscience, the loss of inhibition that giving yourself over to sin and darkness creates. And we see it in people. The scarred body from cutting himself is a vivid illustration, a picture of the self-destructive behaviors that take place when somebody is given over to these dark spiritual forces. His angry violence is a picture of that power-hungry selfishness that is at the root of our sinful nature. And his isolation from everybody around is a picture of the self-centeredness and hatred of others that Satan tries to, to fan into flame within the nature of all of us, the fallen nature, sinful nature of all of us. This man was a picture of humanity at its worst. He's a picture of what Satan is working toward in all fallen human beings. And it is the destiny of all who don't know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as desperately lost as this man was, he wasn't beyond hope. And that's what Jesus shows us next. Because what we get to see next is a display of his divine power and authority. As this man menacingly approaches Jesus and the disciples, the demons suddenly recognize Jesus. Isn't that interesting? He recognized their presence, but they recognized who he was spiritually. They looked beyond his incarnation, beyond his human nature, and they immediately knew that he was the Son of God. And they fell to the ground. They caused the man to fall to the ground at the feet of Jesus. This wasn't an act of worship. Other people fell at the feet of Jesus as an act of worship, but this was not an act of worship. This was the involuntary cowering in terror, in great fear. And the spokesman for the demons says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? These demons had seen Jesus before. 
They had seen him enthroned in heaven. They were there when he cast out all the demons and Satan himself. They remembered Jesus. They recognized him. As it says in James chapter 2, verse 19, even the demons believe and tremble. The demon, demons saw Jesus more clearly than anybody else there. I mean, their theology was impeccable at that point as to who Jesus was. They feared him, but they feared him in, in terms of terror, not in terms of trust and reverence. They knew that they were in rebellion. And what they knew is that he had the power and authority to destroy them forever. It's a foreshadowing here. In this moment, you see a foreshadowing of what will happen in the physical realm and the spiritual realm when Jesus comes back again. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, at that point, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice how Paul there lists every tongue in heaven, every tongue in earth, every knee in, in, in earth and every tongue in earth, every knee in heaven, every, every um, under the earth. It mentions in heaven, earth, and under the earth. These are all, all realms are going to recognize the lordship of Christ and bow before him. Those who know Christ will bow willingly and lovingly. Those who do not know him will bow with that same cowering fear that the demons show here in this, this incident. Jesus didn't come the first time to bring judgment. That's what these demons feared. They were afraid that he was going to bring judgment on them. That's why in verse 28, the lead demon pleads with Jesus, I beg you, do not torment me. In Matthew's account, he adds that the demon also said, have you come here to torment us before the time? Has the time come? Is that why you've come, Jesus, to bring this final judgment and to destroy your enemies forever? And that's why in verse 31 here in Luke 8, he says, they all begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss is the scriptural term for that place of imprisonment, containment, and punishment for evil spiritual beings. But Jesus didn't come the first time to bring that judgment and final victory over all his enemies. That's what his second coming is for. He came the first time to save us. And, as he said in his own words, to bind the strong man. To bind Satan so that the mission of the church could go forward. I've often wondered why did it seem that there was so much demonic activity in the lifetime, the earthly lifetime of Jesus when Jesus was here on earth. Why was there so much demonic activity then? And in the time of the apostles, why, was, why were so many people possessed by demons and delivered during that time? When you don't see hardly any, it's very rare to have any reference to that before Christ came and was incarnate on earth or after the time of the apostles. And most scholars, commentators believe that there was just an intense spiritual war going on that Satan pulled out all the stops when Jesus became man and dwelt in our midst and came to redeem his people. Satan pulled out all the stops. Demonic activity was exceptional during that time. And Jesus said he came to bind the strong man, to bind Satan. In Matthew 12, 
the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus responds, as should be an obvious response, why would Satan cast out Satan? Any kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Why would Satan do that? That's ridiculous. I'm not casting out demons by Satan's power, but what he says, beginning in Matthew 12, verse 28, is that if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. See, that's what Jesus is saying. I've come to plunder Satan's house. That's why Satan has pulled out all the stops. Because Jesus came to bind the strong man. That's what he came the first time for. It's the same spiritual reality that Revelation 20 is talking about. This is a passage of scripture that has confused many in the church over the ages. But in Revelation chapter 20, it talks about a binding of Satan. A binding of Satan that's going to happen for a thousand years. Now, the numbers in the book of Revelation are are not literal numbers, they're symbolic numbers, they're figurative numbers. The numbers have meaning. The number 1,000 means completeness. The complete time of the period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, that's the 1,000 years. Not literally 1,000 years, but the complete period of time in God's plan between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And what Revelation 20 teaches us is that during that time, Satan will be bound. Let me read it to you. This is the vision that John saw. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to a bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. You would say, well, in what way is Satan bound? Satan seems to have been very active since Christ came the first time. Well, John, in this vision, sees a restriction, a binding that is for a particular purpose. It says, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Satan is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations. What happens after the resurrection and ascension of Christ? The Holy Spirit descends upon the church, the day of Pentecost, it indwells the church, empowers the church, and the whole book of Acts is about the gospel going out to all the nations because Satan is bound. That's what Christ did in his first coming. The kingdom of God came upon the earth in the first coming of Christ, and Satan was bound so that the gospel message, which would save and redeem sinners made in the image of God, that that message would go out to all nations Satan has been bound. That's God's narrative. That's what's happening in the past, in the present, and will happen in the future until Christ comes again to bring that final judgment upon all his enemies, physical and spiritual. Interestingly, in Luke chapter 10, we'll see this in the fall when we get to Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples to go out and to, to spread the gospel message, the gospel of the kingdom. And when they come back, listen to what they say when they come back from preaching the gospel. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan is bound 
The mission of the church goes forward. The gospel goes out to the nations. Satan and his demons are powerfully and brilliantly deceitful, but they are defeated. Satan is under the authority and power of Jesus Christ as creator, and as we will see, ultimately, he is defeated because Jesus went to the cross and defeated death, Satan's worst weapon against us. Jesus defeated death in his death and resurrection. And now he is ascended to heaven and rules as king of kings and lord of lords. I want you to notice that this story then ends with three requests. One request from the demons, another request from the townspeople, and a third request from the man who had been delivered from the demons. The first request comes from the demons. They ask to go into a herd of pigs nearby. They want to stay active. They don't want to be cast into the abyss. They don't want to face that final judgment and eternal destruction. So they ask Jesus that they might be sent into a herd of pigs so that they might remain active in this fallen world. But immediately that herd of pigs goes running down the cliffside, down into the lake, and they drown themselves. Jesus had the power and authority to speak to the wind and the waves in a violent storm and tell it to stop. He made that sea calm and peaceful. He also had the power and authority to, by the power of his word alone, direct those demons to go wherever he wanted them to go. That's the power and authority he has over the demonic world. Why did Jesus allow them to destroy a whole herd of pigs? Well, I think he was preparing a lesson for the townspeople. The value of this broken, very extremely broken man being made whole by faith in Christ. That man is so much more valuable than all the value that was lost in any big herd of pigs. And that brings us to the townspeople's request. The herdsmen who were taking care of the pigs, they run into the town to tell what had happened. Partly, I'm sure, to make sure that everybody knew that wasn't their responsibility. They weren't at fault for losing the whole herd. So all the people come running out to see what had happened. And it says that they found this formerly demon-possessed man, this animalistic, violent, vile man, now sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. In the words of the Apostle Paul, he was a new creature in Christ. Luke says at that point that the townspeople made their request. They asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. It's hard to understand why. Having seen what Jesus had the power and authority to do over the demonic world and what he had done for this broken man, why, would they, why were they seized with fear? Why did they tell Jesus to go away? Some commentators say, well, they were so angry at him for the loss of the value of the herd of pigs, but that's, the text doesn't say that. It's not, there, it's not anywhere in that story. I think it's just a fear before this great power that they didn't know, this strange power and authority that Jesus had. It's the same fear, kind of fear, that the disciples had on, in the midst of the violent storm. And, and remember how their fear was even greater when Jesus had the power and authority to stop that storm. They were afraid of Jesus, not the storm. They were afraid of Jesus. And here, they were afraid of Jesus and asked him to go away because of the power and authority that he had. And that leaves us with the delivered man's request in verse 38. 
He begged Jesus that he might go with him. But Jesus said no. Do you notice that's the only request? Of the three requests he got, that's the only one that he, he denied. This man wanted to stay with him and, and, and go with him and, and be a part of his mission, going to all the towns of Judea and Galilee. But Jesus said no. He said, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Return to your home. What an act of grace, not just for this man, but for this town that had just rejected him. He sent a witness back to the town. He says, go home, go to your family, go to your neighbors, go to your friends, go to your former worker, co-workers, and tell them what I have done for you. Many new Christians, when they first get saved, they want to go to the mission field. They want to go to Africa. They want to go to India. They want to go to China. They want to go in the mission field to share Christ about what he's done for them. But most of the time, vast majority of the time, God sends you back to your hometown, back to your people, back to your family, back to your neighbors, because they're the ones who knew what you were before. They're the ones who are able to see the transforming power of his grace. What does this mean for us? This is not one of those sermons where you go home with five clear points about, you know, this is what I'm going to do this week. This is about perspective. It's about being aware And I think that the church of Jesus Christ is way too unaware these days of the reality of spiritual forces of evil that are around us, among us. We need to see the bigger narrative of Scripture. We need to be reminded and strengthened in our perspective that there is a spiritual realm. Certainly God is spiritual, But there are also enemies who are spiritual. Satan and the demons who serve him are at work in our midst. And it sure seems like they're working overtime lately. This is a passage to change our awareness. So we have these two applications, I think. First of all, see by faith the spiritual reality that Scripture teaches The goal of Satan and the demons who serve him is to increase sin in the world, to increase sin in your life. To cause division in the world, to set up peoples against one another. To set up division in the church. That's probably his greatest and most effective way to incapacitate the mission of the church of Jesus Christ is to divide God's people. He wants to isolate you. He wants you in your selfishness to pull away from people instead of reaching out to people. He wants you to lose your conscience, to harden your heart, to lose your sensitivity to feeling shame and guilt like this naked man in the tombs. He wants you to go after what you want selfishly even if it takes violence to get it. And he wants you to get caught up in sins that will make you addicted to or or passionate about self-destructive behaviors. And he wants to bring lies and deceit and falsehood into the world and especially into the church. Always be aware. Scripture doesn't give us much in the way of detail, but it always tells us to be aware that Satan is out there prowling like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But never forget, Satan and his demons are bound. 
which means he cannot thwart or defeat the mission of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And because of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, they are already defeated. They know it. We have to know that too. And secondly, see by faith that Jesus has the power and the authority to transform the worst, most broken sinners in this world. If Jesus could redeem and transform this man, there is nobody you're ever going to meet in your life that's beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. Go, preach the gospel, trusting the Holy Spirit to take your words to transform the lives of hurting, broken, sin-enslaved people who are under the dominion of evil forces. Let's pray. Father, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for seeing us in our brokenness, our slavery to sin, our being led by the nose, by evil spiritual beings into darkness and falsehood. Thank you, Lord, that you saw us in that condition and you loved us and you gave your son's blood to cover our sins, to grant us forgiveness, to restore us and reconcile us to you and to bring about a transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that we know that what Christ accomplished for us by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead has won the victory already. We need not fear. We need to rest in you, trust in you, look to you for power, look to you for guidance and direction to fulfill the mission that you have given to your church. Thank you for the privilege of serving Christ. In his name we pray, amen.